Support for WERU comes from L.S. Robinson Company Insurance of Southwest Harbor, serving the insurance needs of MDI families and businesses since 1932, an employee-owned company. LSRINS.com or 1-800-439-4311. All that and he still ended on time. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fourth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of most months. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about immigration. Can we live without it? We'll talk about immigration and jobs, federal policy, and its effect on economic development and workforce around the country, and most particularly right here in Maine. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests Joining us by phone today from his office in Washington, D.C., is Danny Behar. Danny is the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Global and Economic Development at the Brookings Institution. Welcome, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Joining us here in the studio this morning is Carla Dickstein. Carla is Senior Vice President for Research and Policy Development at the Coastal Enterprise Institute in Brunswick. Welcome, Carla. Thank you, Anne. And then also with us in the studio is Martha Searchfield. Martha is the Executive Director of the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. Well, here comes summer in Maine. For many seasonal businesses, that means the scramble is on. I was a business owner at one time. I know just how this feels. The scramble is on to find enough workers to fill the demands of the busy summer season in one of our top industries. But it's not just tourism. With an aging population, Maine increasingly relies on immigrants to fill the job markets in healthcare, education, and our other top sectors. Are new restrictions on immigration creating job opportunities for domestic labor here in Maine, or are they creating a labor bottleneck that threatens our prosperity? I'd like to take the conversation maybe from the global down to the local. So I may ask you, Danny, to lead off and just very quickly summarize some of the findings of your research on global immigration and economic development. Yeah, well, thanks Thanks for having me, and I think this is a really, really important topic. Um, and, well, you know, when you look at, at, at economic researchers, there, there's, there's a few questions that are super um, on top of the research agenda of many people, which is what happens when you have a lot of migrants, what's happening to the wages or to the unemployment of the rest of the population. Um, and our instincts for a reason... Um, that, that I don't know, sometimes people use that politically, um, is to think the worst, to say, well, you're going to have a lot of migrants, everybody else is going to lose their job, uh, wages are going to go down, it's a disaster. And, and, but, but when you actually look at serious economic research, uh, most of the evidence overwhelm, overwhelmingly 
um, show that the effects on wages that migrants have on, on, on the wages of natives um, are very small, if any. Um, and also there are very few effects on unemployment. The reason for this is that when you think about migrants who are coming from very different places from far away, these people usually bring skills um, that are not available in the local communities. They bring experience that are different from the ones that is in the local communities. So they, so, so their economists like to think of these as substitutes or complements. So, so migrant workers seem to be more of a complement to the local labor force than a substitute. Um, and, and that's why um, there's a huge potential on um, on exploiting more this uh, flow that is um, this global flow that is very unexploited. So we, we have a lot of trade of goods, we have a lot of investment across borders, but migration is still a flow that is very very small, uh, in, in, like uh, proportionally, and um, communities, countries could really benefit um, from from more migration. Of course, there are always, as in any other economic flow, there's going to be always winners and losers. But in, in general, we expect that overall um, there's going to be more gains from migration than, than that, that, could, that we could use to compensate those losers. So, Carla, bring that home to Maine for us a little bit. I mean, how much immigrant labor do we have here in Maine and how much unfulfilled labor demand do we have here in Maine? Um, in terms of, I know the figure for the population, which is where it's about 3.7% of Maine's population are immigrants. And what we mean by that are people who are foreign born um, and do not have an American parent. Um, but what's happening in Maine, the context has become dire because we have the lowest unemployment rate of 2.7% statewide, um, lowest in 40 years, and it's even lower in southern Maine. So you just can't find people. And so the impact for us um, is a win-win uh, because uh, we cannot fill those jobs at, at all levels. You're seeing for, you know, for, uh, for hire signs all over the place. We have companies that can't expand here because they can't find the labor force. So they're taking their business outside of Maine. Um, people are shutting down parts of their business because they can't continue um, without a labor force. So the arguments of displacement, I think, are even more acute, uh, are, are less acute even here because we cannot find the labor. Um, we're getting people uh, at, who are unskilled, uh, some of them illiterate, uh, so that the um, – but on the other end uh, – we have asylum seekers who have higher educational level, levels than Mainers do. They have post-secondary uh, education. They've got graduate degrees. The issues in Maine are how do you take this talent pool and help them um, acclimate and learn English and get their credentials and learn the system so that they become very productive? Um, the other side of this is um, immigrants – are known to start more businesses than Americans are. And I think it's 25% of American businesses are started by first-generation immigrants. So it's both the entrepreneurial side and the workforce. Uh, we need this talent. Mm -hmm. And so bring it right home to Hancock County, Martha. How does it feel in, well, you're the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce, but how does it feel right around here? Well, I agree with Carla that our biggest problem is we simply don't have enough people 
in the state of Maine anymore looking for jobs. And we have, I think it's two problems because we have a full-time job force that is seeking people. And then, of course, we have a huge tourism economy that is seasonal. So there is a seasonal job force that Maine needs. And so it has to rely very heavily on immigration. Are those um, are immigrants coming to Maine in sufficient number to fill those opportunities? I would say for the full-time side, no. There are programs for the seasonal side, the H-2B program, the uh, J-1 program, which is for seasonal workers in the tourism hospitality industry. The programs are in place, but our government is currently not letting them function to the best of their abilities as they had in the past. And so it's becoming a problem. So what are – I'm not sure who can answer this. Maybe, Danny, this would be for you. But what have been recent changes in federal policy that have affected the flow of immigrants into the U.S.? Can you answer that? I mean, I'm not up to date with the particular, with, with the particular changes, but there have been um, – it, it seems to me from being here in Washington that there's a lot of talk so far, um, a very dangerous talk and very – um, damaging talk, but but I think that most of the big uh, changes um, that uh, the president and the administration are are talking about they haven't happened yet. They're, they're, they they they've talked about um, decreasing um, significantly the quotas of H one B visas. Um, they've talked about eliminating the diversity lottery visa, for instance. Um, they if the, the, something that is happening, which is I guess for another discussion, is that they actually um, it, it dramatically cut on the number of refugees that the U.S. is receiving, uh, which, the way, could be a great um, source of labor for the type of jobs I think that that, um, that you're talking about in Maine. Um, so, so I think the intentions are there. Um, there have been little steps, um, and and but but just the fact that the intentions are there. You see also on the on the migrant side a lot of reluctance to come to the U.S. I've heard um, a colleague of mine who's a professor in Australia who told me that they never got um, he's never seen so great Ph.D. applications to their programs for migrants this year, and of course that's a result of of, um, of very very good people from abroad deciding not to come to the U.S. because there's a lot of uncertainty. I see both Carla and Martha nodding as you say that. Go ahead, Carla. Yeah. Um, I do have figures in refugees. There's been executive orders, as far as I understand, um, slowing this down. Um, but in uh, 2016, we had 650 refugees resettled in Maine through the resettlement agencies. And last year, only about 250. And as of um, the middle of this month, we've only had 53 we are seeing um, asylum seekers still coming. Some of it's secondary um, migration where they've gone elsewhere first. But it's nowhere near what we need. And we're also competing with every other state, particularly in the Northeast, that would also like immigrants to help with workforce and um, help with their economies as well. So, um, no, it's very tight. We could use many more. Go ahead. Martha, jump in. What's changed from federal well, policy? Well, sort of the talk the, that's been happening, the language being used around immigration, um, the U.S. Travel Association 
has this is going to be the second year that uh, foreign travel is down in the U.S. So it's not actually just the workers choosing to try to come to the United States. It's people coming even to visit the United States. There's been an effect of the across the board on many industries because of the talk. Wow, coming from our government, our federal yep. government. Yeah. Danny, I, I read some of your research that talked about um, how immigration raised the knowledge level on both sides of the equation, both the receiving comp- country and the sending comp- country benefited by raising the knowledge level, and that provided economic benefits to both sides of the equation. Can you do better and summarize that for our listeners? <clears throat> Yeah, so, I mean, basically what, what I've been focusing on um, in, in my academic research is to look at, you know, aspects beyond the, the first-order effect, you would say, of migration. So it's not, it's not that migrants could have an effect on, on wages or employment, but, but there's much more to it. Migrants, by nature, are risk-takers. So they tend to be entrepreneurs in, in much higher quantities. For instance, in the United States as a whole, um, migrants are about 15% of the population, one-five, uh, but they represent 25% of entrepreneurs. Um, these small firms um, that migrants are much more likely to create, um, much, more like, mo- much more likely than, than natives are, um, are actually the, 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 are the engines of, of job creation in the country because these small firms create about 1.5 million jobs a year. Um, so... so, so I've, I've taken this to really exploit this in a, in a, in a very serious, um, as a very serious research agenda. And, and the idea here is that migrants are more entrepreneurs, and migrants also bring knowledge um, that otherwise it's very hard to acquire. Um, you know, there's, a, the, the, there's different kinds of knowledge. There's the knowledge that um, it's, it's embedded in a good, say. So if you, like a calculator, for instance, if you have a calculator, you don't need to know how to add. The calculator will do it for you. That cannot explain differences um, of knowledge across places because, you know, you can just ship the calculator at almost no cost and send it everywhere. Then you have the type of knowledge that you can codify, that you can write in a piece of paper, that you can put in a patent, that you can put on a Wikipedia page. Um, also, that, you can, that cannot explain differences because you, or you don't need it. It's very cheap to transfer that knowledge from one place to the other. There's a third type of knowledge that, that is a really important one, which, which uh, some people refer to it as tacit knowledge. It's the knowledge that is in our brains. Um, it's the knowledge that is very hard to acquire and very hard to transfer. And it's a knowledge that we, in our day today, um, it's very important for us. So just to give you an example, I mean, how many of you or, or listeners um, is willing to get into a plane um, uh, or, or to remain inside of the plane after the captain says, well, you know, I read all the manuals and I got all A's, but this is the first time I'm going to fly, <laughs> right. right? Nobody will want to do that. So, so this captain doesn't have the tacit knowledge that is required to do the job. Same thing for a surgeon. You know, the surgeon can have, have A's all in all his, uh, his or her med school uh, exams, but if they haven't gone through surgery with somebody else who's more senior and taught them, you know, that's the, they don't have the, no, the required knowledge. So if this is this is the kind of knowledge that also makes us more productive. This is what makes a firm a manager, perhaps a better manager. This is what makes a firm improve the quality. Um, and this has a huge effect on the economy. Like, like this kind of knowledge 
it's what would allow a firm to become just a local firm to become an exporter, yep. for instance. Yep. And we see that in the data. I mean, if everything I'm telling you is true, so then that means that when migrants move from one place to the other, you should also see the knowledge moving from one place to the other. And this is a lot where we're documenting that when people, um, let's say when, when, when French migrants move to the, to the U.S., so then the U.S. becomes a much better exporter of wine. Yep, and and I guess um, we're going to talk about how that affects Maine and yeah. our local economy too. Let me remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Democracy Forum this morning on WERU FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is immigration. Can we live without it? Our guests this morning are Danny Behar, the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution. Carla Dickstein, Senior Vice President for Research and Policy Development at the Coastal Enterprise Institute here in Maine, and Martha Searchfield, Executive Director of the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce. So Danny's been talking about the knowledge transfer and how this boosts the receiving economy. And, um, you know, Maine is competing not only with other countries, but with other states for this knowledge. Like, Well, I, I think that's an incredibly important point because um, – we are becoming multicultural nationally, internationally, and we are the whitest. I think we tie with Vermont as the whitest state in the country. Many of us haven't had exposure to other people from around the world or even in the U.S. of different races, different religions. And, um, and yet the economy um, is requiring that cultural um, um, competency in a way if you want to do business all over the world and – the rest of the country. So it's it helps also just purely from an economic point of view um, to have that exposure here in Maine. And it's true. I mean, we've, we've worked on ideas that have come from immigrants about new markets at CEI and, um, you know, um, working on different foods. We had an ag project at CEI piloting different kinds of vegetables that immigrant community would eat and whether we could diversify local farming. Um, that one didn't take off, but it's that kind of thinking, like what are the new markets? How do, how do we bring people in to help identify that? And they will bring their own contacts as well, which is what Danny was also talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and go ahead, Martha. I also think Maine has um, sort of another problem when it comes to attracting immigrants is that I'm, I love Maine. I live here, obviously, but we're not a sexy, glamorous type of place to live. And so when people cold. think of America, the problems that California has are not the same immigration problems that Maine has because the reason people want to go to California are very different than why somebody would choose Maine. So we also have – it's almost like a marketing PR problem problem in terms of convincing people that they do want to come here and they do want to live here. So I think it's hard to blanket immigration across the whole United States as one problem because it's really – there's regional issues. There's other things that go into the idea of who needs immigrants and why they should come. So what's happening to the visas for seasonal workers right now? I mean what is the state of play? Are there enough to get – your businesses through the summer? Um, no, everybody did not get all the workers that they requested. Um, the cap got met, and then the government decided to do a lottery instead of doing it the way they normally had. How was it that they normally did it before? Uh, sort of a first-come, first-serve application 
process and they filled the visas. Mm -hmm. And then they decided to go to a lottery in March, which is a new thing. So there were winners and losers. Uh Even, you know, if you had done everything right and gotten your application in on time and paid all the fees, you now were in a lottery. So we were better this year than we were last year. But everybody did not get what they needed and people still need more workers. The government has the ability to lift the cap, extend the cap, which they did last year. Very late in the season, they could do it right now and it would help everybody, the entire coast, not just Bar Harbor. But they have not done it yet. How did businesses in Bar Harbor feel the effect of that slowdown last year? I mean, was it a material effect in the amount of business they were able to do? Absolutely. When businesses have to uh, close one day a week so that everybody gets a day off, when normally, you know, our season is very short, half the year really, and they need to go seven days a week, that's that's an economic, you know, problem. When hotels offer guests when they're checking in, 5% 5% off the bill if they forego housekeeping daily, that's somebody's taking a hit to their bottom line. Yep. So the businesses work very hard to stay open and still supply that top level of hospitality, but it's sort of behind the scenes that they are making the adjustments and it is costing them. Hmm. How does that play out for more full-time businesses? I mean, these are mostly seasonal. These are seasonal. Right. These are all seasonal well, I'm referring to. I've mentioned examples where companies can't get the labor and they're going elsewhere. Um, Some of the bigger companies I've heard are um, locating expansions out of state. One example that was in the paper, Cuddledown, um, which manufactures bedding, um, they had to expand to Massachusetts because of labor. And I don't know if they're employing immigrants in Massachusetts or not, but they couldn't find the labor pool here. Um, So it is, um, you know, it's playing out. And whether people stay in Maine is another story. But the problem is all over the Northeast. We just have it, I think, more acutely than even our neighbors do because of, um, you know, our our demographics. Mm -hmm. What would an ideal, like if we could concoct the best possible immigration policy for the main economy, what would that look like? I have thought about that. (laughs) I I don't know if it's everything, but other states are welcoming immigrants proactively. They've set up offices of the Office of New Americans. Maybe it would be the Office of New Mainers. We actually proposed that in legislation this year. And they work proactively to attract people, say, you know, we we need you, we welcome you, we will help you integrate into your community, we will help you integrate into the workforce. The biggest barrier that I mentioned is language and um, not being able to navigate the system. I mean, even if you're, you know, a, um, a graduate or have a higher education, it's all totally new. And some places like Canada have helped motivate their populations or um, not not with money, but just getting groups of people to take on families and help support them. And we're seeing that happen in different parts of Maine already. Um, Augusta particularly has a group that's um, helping the Iraqis resettle 
and I'm starting to see it pop up in other areas. And this has been going on in Portland for quite a while. But, it, I mean, it sounds like a lot of that is competing against other states for a, a resource that, because of federal policy, is quite scarce, right? Right. I mean, some of this started before that, where people recognized that the immigrant population was an important population. And part of that is because we're also seeing a number of people not participating in the labor force, particularly after the recession. So, I mean, in our organization, we try to work on all groups that aren't fully employed to their potential. But the immigrants, particularly, um, they are active in the labor force. They, they want to be in the labor force. So they have their barriers and all the other groups as well do. But yes, um, you know, some of these other neighboring states have much better institutional um, and policy support for the immigrant to attract and retain immigrants. And um, people like Maine, though. Um, they come and they like rural Maine. It's safe. It's smaller. They get a sense of community. And so we have positives here that really do attract people. And that's one of the reasons, for example, I, you know, I understand in Lewiston why so many Somalis did secondary migration because it was a safer place. Mm-hmm. Dan, Dan, and if I may, yeah, yeah, I wanted to add something um, to that. I mean, I, I, don't know the, the, I don't know that well, um, of course, the, 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 the main economy, but I think an additional component um, – I think, you know, in an ideal world, I know that, that it has a lot of political, um, it could have a lot of political setbacks and so on, but um, you, I, I think that linking entrepreneur, entrepreneurship policies um, to migration could be also a very uh, important thing that, that it, it's not very widespread today, but knowing that migrants tend to be entrepreneurs um, in excess and, and uh, you know, having some sort of government uh, funding for for migrants who want to start small firms—that's something that could be very attractive to migrants. It's it's a little bit difficult, I know, because you should also have something similar for natives. Of course, you you can you, you, so, so, but something like that could be put in place um, in a way that that it um, you know that makes everybody happy. Uh, the best example I know of this is, is Israel. Israel in the in the in the nineties, it received. Uh, about one million uh, migrants from the former Soviet Union, um, uh, which was a huge increase of the population by about 20%. And some people don't know this, but a lot of the policies, uh, of the public policies that the state of Israel uh, put in place for entrepreneurship and funding and, and that, that are, some people claim are responsible for, for the state of the economy in Israel in terms of the, of the startup and, and all that, were put in place to deal with this migration flow uh, because you had a lot of very skilled people who were having were working in, in, in occupations that were way below their their skill levels um, and and these people were had incentive to go and take a risk and start a new a new firm um, so, so those are things that that, um, that, that I, are worth thinking of in, a, in an ideal world I know that it has a, it, it, it involves a lot of um, it could involve a lot of issues too, but looking at the economy of Maine, that has, of course, a lot of exports of of um, natural resources and 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 seafood and so on. There is, of course, some a lot of exports I'm seeing of of, of air, civilian aircraft en- engines and electronics and so on. But there's could there could be much more of that. And I think one way to 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 to, to also have a much more diversified export basket comes could could be through uh, uh, through providing tools for migrants to be entrepreneurs. 
I, I want to um, follow up on this question about Maine competing with other New England states and um, and how we react relatively amongst ourselves in attracting the small number of immigrants that are available to us. But then I also want to talk a little bit about how the U.S. is faring in competition in the global marketplace um, as a destination, for instance, with Canada. Um, our neighbor to the north. But um, I'm going to take a a station break. We're going to take a short pledge break right now. It's pledge week here at WERU. When we come back, we'll pick up that question and we'll take some listener calls at that point as well. Um, So uh, to the pledge break, we'll see you back here in a couple minutes. All right. 1-800-643-6273. I'm Amy Brown here, joined briefly by Joel Mann. Hey, hey. And we are here to ask you to call in and show your support for programs like the Democracy Forum, the local news and public affairs programs that you hear here on WERU. The number locally is 469-6600, or you can call toll-free at 1-800-643-6273. And what a pledge drive we're having. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's Thank been you all great. so much. We uh, set out raising around $13,000. We're uh, almost to $16,000 right now. We're going to keep it going right up to Saturday Morning Coffee House. And even our new goal member is very impressive. 75 new members out of 100. Fantastic. Yeah, 25 new members to go. So if you're out there and you're listening and you've never uh, been a member of WERU, make a pledge. Whatever amount works for you works for us. We appreciate it. Make you part of the WERU family. Uh, everyone who calls in during the public or has called in during the public affairs blocks this week and who calls in during this hour will be put in the watering can for a drawing that we'll be holding tonight during the Democracy Now! block for a uh, little book called The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on the Moral Panic in Our Time by Brooke Gladstone, the co-host of WNYC's On the Media. Uh, the host of Radio Lab called it a spirited rampage through the hall of mirrors that is the post-truth error. You think that'd be a much, much thicker book? I know. This is probably all you can handle. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Somebody we- does say in the, in the reviews on the back that it's hopeful. So uh, get your name in the watering can for that. Show your support for independent media. We all say we want the media to be independent. This is one of the four times a year we ask you to step up and put your money where your mouth is and definitely support it yourself. Any amount, call 469-6600 or 1-800-643-6273 and consider becoming a a sustainer. Sustaining members give us a regular source of income and that is... um, Excuse me, as little as $5 a month deducted from your debit or credit account each month. And uh, and you can increase it if you want to. You can have your name put in any drawings. We want to thank Robert from Brewer who called in a renewal. Or actually, no, who did this online during the Friday morning public affairs. So Robert's yeah. name will go in the watering can. Great. And you have someone. Yes, we have uh, Pat and Charlie from Mount Desert Island to thank. And they say this, is, this, this pledge is in honor of, and the support of Amy Brown's public affairs Aww. and programs like Ann Luther's Great Voter Progress is caused by programs like this. And it is. They're, Thank you so much, they're, Pat they're getting and you educated on all the different things out there you have to be aware of. And thank you, Pat and Charlie, for all you do. So I just want to real quickly, before we send it back over to Democracy Forum, just mention some of the things that they've covered on that program in just the last few months, because this is really important programming. And 
if you can, I, I've said this before in the pledge drive, but think about how much time you think it might take to put together a public affairs show and then multiply that by at least so 10. So true. So these volunteers are doing a lot of work to bring you this important programming. Uh, Ann Luther and the team that she works with at the League of Women Voters uh, in conjunction with WERU have covered Ranked Choice Voting, how it will work in Maine, gerrymandering, what's the big deal, primary elections, what are they good for, 10 months in taking stock in Maine, that's uh, after the uh, last presidential election, I believe that was. Political parties, do they still matter? Census 2020, making sense of the census. Civil discourse, can we still do it? I mean, these are all such timely and important topics. So they really are. They really are. one 800 Now is the perfect time to call. All right. And we're going to send it back over to Anne and uh, her guests on the Democracy Forum. Welcome back to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Danny Behar, the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Global in the Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Carla Dickstein, Senior Vice President for Research and Policy Development at the Coastal Enterprise Institute, and Martha Searchfield, Executive Director of the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Our topic today is immigration. Can we live without it? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling now, toll-free, 866 866- Six two five nine three seven eight. If you're local, you can call four six nine zero five zero zero. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. But if you do get through, uh, please take your answer offline so that others can also participate. Uh, don't wait to get your call in. Call early, and here's somebody already. Lawton from Penobscot, you're on the air. Go ahead. I appreciate your program, and I was going to say one of your panelists mentioned it. I think it's important for places like Bar Harbor to try to find a year-round solution and possibly some place like the College of the Atlantic, if they sponsored a scholarship for a student from Haiti or, uh, like, down east further, um, Machias area, Harrington, there's been more year-round employment for immigrant people there's a little bit more cultural issues that are played out there in a positive way. There's health care. There's free health care available down east. I think in Augusta, you're right, in the Augusta area, the western area, southern Maine, <clears throat> there's been bigger coalitions. But I was on the board of uh, MDI Hospitals Community Health Plan in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, uh, you know, there was feeling in the immigrant community that came there that for some folks they felt treated like second-class citizens. I think it's getting better. You know, I think uh, a lot of younger millennial people in business that maybe don't carry some of the prejudice. And, you know, for all of us, prejudice is bred out of our own ignorance. But I think there has to be more cultural things available um, you know, poor people in third world countries have cell phones and they look around the world where jobs are available. I, appreciate, I appreciate your program. I appreciate your call a lot. And I mean, what about that? I mean, there has to be an assimilation dimension, a welcoming climate for people coming to our area. And uh, there is a racial component to this. So mm-hmm. I mean, he was talking about down east. So go ahead, Martha, you first. Um, yes, actually, I think there are more immigrants down east. Um, Hancock, Goolsboro, sort of the farther up you 
the coast you go. I think that is very true. Um, I just want to speak to the idea of a year-round economy. Mm-hmm. We do have um, on the island Jackson Lab, which is the largest employer of year-round employer of people in Hancock County. So I think there's a little bit of a little misinformation out there about Bar Harbor being a year-round economy. It is a year-round town. People do live there year-round. There are restaurants. There are hotels. But it is also predominantly a tourism town. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of seasonal businesses because there are not enough people coming to support all of the businesses. Yep. So I think when people speak of you know, Bar Harbor needing a year-round economy. We have a year-round economy. I know that you've done some work in terms of the supports that people, that immigrants need right. in, in the community when they do come. Right. Well, um, we, we've we worked with the various providers of workforce assistance in Portland, but we took that experience um, and t- built a, a group to think about what was needed to attract more people and to help the people that were already here. So we focused primarily on workforce integration because that's where we felt we could get the best support for a bill in the legislature, uh, which is sitting on the appropriations table about Along to die. Along with so many other things, yeah. <laughs> but um, the idea was you, you have to start with English, as I've said, and you can't ignore the cultural parts of this. And a lot of employers have to be trained as well as their employees and the supervisors because it's very, um, you know, they're dealing with different patterns and different ways of responding to work and norms in their own countries. And it takes a while. Mm -hmm. And we did identify employers, particularly in Portland, who have been doing this for a long time, that after you get through with that or get past that, you've got a very loyal workforce who tell other immigrants to come, and it becomes uh, a comparative advantage for you to yeah. source labor. So, But I think the point about most of the people coming in now are people of color. Maine is not used to that, and we do have to have a conversation about race. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of um, skilled people who have started that. There are people that specialize, particularly in Portland and Lewiston. But I think the more we encounter people who are not like ourselves – um, we all have to just be upfront about that, and it should be incorporated into education. Yeah. How much of the federal policy is driven by that, do you think, Danny? You know, it's, it's, to be honest, it's hard to tell uh, nowadays if there's any sort of logic to a lot of these federal policies. Yeah. So, so, so I wouldn't know. I mean, I, would get, I mean, in theory, none, but, but, but who knows, right? Yeah. I mean, this administration has a lot of biases. Uh, um, listeners, we are taking your calls on the, to join this conversation on immigration and its effect on the economy in the U.S. and in Maine. That's 866-625-9378 or if you're local, 469-0500. I want to circle back to that question about how the U.S. is competing with our um, neighbors like Canada in attracting immigrants. If immigrants are the secret to job growth, economic growth, and prosperity, are we falling behind, Danny? Well, you know, uh, the, the U.S. as a whole has a huge advantage. That is, you know, the, 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 the most advanced economy in the world, um, where uh, the, the, the quality of life is, is very high, so it always had an advantage um, there. It's not, uh, but of course, it's not it's not a given forever. 
Um, Canada has a very different system of migration, um, and their system, uh, roughly there are two systems. If you want to come to work in the U.S., you kind of have to have an offer already, so that's, that's the H-1B visa. You cannot get an H-1B visa if you don't have a job lined up for you. In Canada, they're much more open. They will just find, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking roughly, right, but in mm-hmm. Canada, will, they will give you a score in terms of your... Um, of your skills and your studies, and, and then uh, if you're above some threshold, you're welcome, and then you'll find a way. Um, so, so the two approaches are, I mean, th- there's no right and wrong approach. Um, uh, it, it seems like something that it's optimal will be some sort of hybrid between the two. Um, but, 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 but beyond that, um, I mean, of course, this goes back to what I said before, that um, this Australian colleague of mine saying, you know, we never got so great... PhD applications um, since since this new administration is in place here in the U.S. So, um, of course, it, you you will see that the, the more this rhetoric against migrants will keep going, the more these uh, arbitrarily cuts in some sort of migrations immigrations programs of, of this or other kind keep happening, or at least the threat of them is still on. You will see the best people, the brightest people, uh, looking for options elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And of course, Canada is is a great it's a, it's a great uh, option. It's a great country. It's a, it's a growing has a growing economy. There's very co- good quality of life. So so yeah. So so in the, in, the, in that sense, Canada will become a very a, a, a much stronger competitor um, for mig- for the good migrants and for the best migrants. Um, I, I don't think there are good and bad migrants. Uh, I mean, when when I say that, I'm talking about people who are perhaps more likely to to get into jobs that are more entrepreneurial or there are that there are more knowledge intensive but but um but in general um the, the, you know the the, the the best and the bride they have options yes. and they will choose to, to 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 get the option that is most more convenient for them at the time yeah yeah go ahead i Carla. mean we've already seen it the are the immigrants that landed here and lived here crossing over to canada for a more welcoming environment i i don't have how many did that but we know it happened um and what Danny was saying about, um, you know, a different system, my understanding is they are proactive on targeting people who, where they, they have skill gaps, um, probably both education levels, but also deliberately where the skill gaps are. And they work regionally um, in the provinces to, um, to attract those people. Yep. You're nodding, Martha. Go ahead. Well, the, uh, there is an, the other side of attracting people here. There is, of course, the housing and infrastructure and public transportation and all those other things where Maine is not as advanced in a lot of ways as Canada is. And so there are other things that make it more attractive because it makes it easier. Right. Um, so let, let's talk a, a little bit more about um, – I mean, and it's not just tourism, but we've mm-hmm. got, let's say, healthcare, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, we're an aging population here in Maine. Our healthcare needs are growing. The people that we have to fill those needs are shrinking. Um, Carla, what about so, it? So I actually have the stats on this. this I um, thought you might. Yeah. Um, the, a recent report in 2016 said that 17% of doctors, um, of doctors are immigrants, 13% of psychiatrists Five percent nurses and five um, percent, uh, including home health aides, psychiatric and nursing. Some skilled, some not, you know, unskilled or semi-skilled. 
Um, that those are bigger numbers than the proportion of immigrants, which is about four percent of the population. This is for Maine in this particular. Is Maine. Yeah. yeah. So yes, and they're desperate. Everybody's desperate. What you hear about, of course, front and center, are we don't have people to take care of us, and we we need more people. And um, there's, you know, what's happening policy-wise is that the reimbursement rates aren't going up high enough. But even so, many natives don't want to do those jobs. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of those jobs have been filled by immigrants who first come in. And that's happening here, too. Unfortunately, a lot of really educated people and doctors and medical people who don't quite have the language skills and can't get their credentials verified here are taking those jobs. And that – and you know, it's good that some of those jobs are filled, but it's a waste of talent, and yeah. we have to figure out how to get them credentialed and moving in the system so that we can take advantage of their talent. Yep. Um, it's not just health care. It's not just tourism. Education would be another one, right? Are we finding enough teachers? Right. Um, no, probably not. No, we have a teacher shortage. I don't have the stats on that, but... Um, but they are filling STEM jobs. I do have stats on that. 15.7 open jobs to an employer. Oh, that wait a minute. That was it, wrong, wrong stat. Um, immigrants represented over 9% of STEM jobs in Maine. Again, bigger than their mm. population. Mm-hmm. So um, let me just do a little bit of a station identification, then I'm going to come back and ask about, I guess, is the myth that immigrants are taking jobs away from um, native-born Americans. So anyway, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Danny Behar um, from the Brookings Institution, Carla Dickstein from the Maine Coastal Enterprise Institute, and Martha Searchfield from the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce. We are taking your calls in this um, half of the show, so feel free to join our conversation, 866-625-9378. Let's uh, talk about that job displacement. I mean, is it happening on the island that immigrants are taking jobs away from people who are native-born who might otherwise want to do that work? On the island? No, because we just don't have enough people. Right. I mean, we don't have enough people living on the island to fill all the jobs. Um, so I would say no, that is not the case. I mean, even if they came across the causeway from Ellsworth or Trenton, I mean, it's 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 more complicated because we also have. <laughs> A parking problem. Yeah. So it's very hard sometimes for somebody who lives in Ellsworth or Trenton, if they wanted to come work on the island, there's other problems yep. that could be preventing it. When you have the uh, H-2Bs or the J-1s coming, part of the program is they are supplied with housing. It's part of the process and the cost to the business. So the employer provides housing. Yes. Uh, okay. So it's never just one thing. In a, some, a discussion like this, it's it's many yeah. layers on top of layers of how things have built been built and why things are happening now. Mm-hmm. And that parking does play a role. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I know an example in your area of, of a restaurant that um, it's not an immigrant because they, they were desperate. They couldn't get their visas filled, so they went to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And they're working with other restaurants to pull people – to, to, for an initiative, but what they need is housing, and they're going to build workforce housing. Mm-hmm. So Martha's absolutely right. Yeah, and the transit issues here are, you know, 
um, difficult, particularly in rural. To say the least. Yeah. Yeah. But what about the idea, Danny, you alluded to it early on, the idea that um, allowing more immigration and um, opening up the spigot a little bit to allow more foreign-born workers displaces jobs uh, for native-born workers. What about that? Well, when you look at serious studies about this, this is, I mean, it's a very important question. And, and, um, and, and, you know, when we think about it logically, you would think, well, yeah, of course. I mean, there are a certain number of jobs, and, and either you have it or the native or the foreign worker. Um, but when you look at it um, uh, very in details, and when you look at the numbers, there's very little evidence of that happening. Of that happening, and the reason is that when when uh, migrants come into an economy, they might get some jobs. I mean, I, th- I think the case we're discussing on Maine is a bit different because you're saying there's shortages there. So, but let's imagine that there's no shortages. There's full employment. Um, what happens a lot is that, first of all, a lot of these migrants start their own businesses, and they even create jobs. That, that, that's something that we've seen on research a lot. Second, we also see that um, often in the, in the medium to long term, they, in the short term, they might displace some people, but in the medium to long term, these people that are displaced, they tend to experience some upward mobility in, their, in, their, in, in, in the labor market. So, so, for instance, they will tend to specialize in skills that are that are uh, particularly strong among natives, such like the language-speaking uh, skills. Um, so they will probably experience uh, going to a job that uh, is often better paid, in which they're, it's, it's a little bit more specialized. Um, so, so at the end of the story, that's, that's the reason that you don't see a lot of impact of migrants on the wages of others, because mm-hmm. um, after there's some sort of uh, rearrangement of the labor market, you see that those that were more uh, affected or threatened, quote-unquote, by, by migrants, they tend to get jobs that are a little bit better Huh. And that they that they have an advantage over migrants. Huh. Um, you see, and, and just to finish, you also see that, for instance, in countries where there's a huge informal sector. Uh, when there's a huge informal sector, it, it tends to happen that migrants uh, often uh, take many jobs in the informal sector, and that uh, generates an incentive for natives to move towards the formal sector, which are jobs that, are, that tend to be better paid and with benefits and so on. So interesting. So in the overall, you see actually a positive effect. Uh, we have a caller on the line, Maggie from Trenton. Are you still there? I'm still here. Go ahead. Um, my question really has to do with uh, seasonal workers. I'm wondering, is there any evidence uh, that they have in any way um, misbehaved, you know, been dangerous people or overstayed their visa to justify the government uh, cutting down their numbers so much? Thanks for your question, Martha. Go ahead. Um I am not aware that there is increased crime when we have seasonal workers. Um, we, they, we've been using them in Bar Harbor for a very long time. And in terms of the government cutting the numbers, I think the people who come here to work come to work. And I don't think uh, the government has any evidence to justify the cutting back of the visas. Do you want to weigh in on that, Carla? Yeah, I, I, I don't know of evidence in this way. Like any population, there's people that are bad actors, but not systematically that I know of in terms of seasonal workers. Um, the positive story up down east is we had migrant workers for years that liked it so much 
that um, they they were able to stay when they could patch two seasonal jobs together, and they were able to grow blueberries one season and then work at um, Fair Trade Lobster another season and create a life. And, um, you know, they have a Mexican restaurant in um, Millbridge. That's pretty, an attraction. So, I mean, there, there are these key stories where – and we want that to happen or at least I want it to happen and the community seems to have embraced them. I mean, you're, you live closer to Millbridge than I do but um, – uh, there were lines last summer at that yeah, restaurant. People like it, and a lot of natives, um, uh, native uh, Millbridge people going. Yeah, we also forget I, it isn't just tourism in yeah. Hancock County or farther down the coast. There is a blueberry business, which is also seasonal, right? And that's it's an important part of our main economy. Yeah. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah. I, I just have some numbers, not not a particular on seasonal, seasonal workers, but in general. Um, that I compile after after hearing some of the of the thoughts of the, from the administration. So this is on general on immigration so for the U.S. So between 1990 and today, the number of undocumented migrants in the U.S. rose from 3.5 to 11 million people, mm-hmm. uh, but crime rates decreased by 50 percent huh. plus. And second, the incarceration rates um, are 1.6 percent for migrants, but are 3.3 percent for natives. Mm. So the data, at least when you look at it roughly, um, doesn't. That there's no evidence whatsoever that migrants tend to be more, um, that they behave uh, more in a, in a criminal way than natives do. Actually, quite the opposite. So I mean, federal policy is part of it, and main policy is the other part. Um, you know, let's. What what could citizens, voters, what do we need to know and where are the pressure points that we can be asking our government? What should we be asking for? Well, I I think we ask our delegation to support an open, you know, um, a, a welcoming immigration policy. That's one at the federal level because that creates the flow of people who can come and stay. So um, that's an important Piece and then at the state level, it's more the details of how you um, support them while they're here, recognizing it's going to cost in the beginning. But the payback, um, different places have done studies, but you know, something after Utica, New York said seven years, other places have said after 13 years, but you've also got the long term of um, their kids because they tend to be younger, you know, have more kids and. They are the ones that learn English really well and go on. So it's a really important policy for the state as a whole, and that should be um, that should be um, talked about with legislators and policymakers. What would you say, Martha? What should we be asking for? I know you've been corresponding with Senator King about this very question. Um, we're we are in uh, for the seasonal workers. We are very fortunate to have one of those rare issues where all four of our members of Congress have written letters of support and understand the seasonal worker problem. So I know that within our state, they do agree and they are working on it. Um, But I, from our state, the state of Maine government, I think we have got to start investing more in our infrastructure. And by that, I mainly mean public transportation and housing. Mm -hmm. 
Danny, what would you say? What should we be asking of our state and federal government? Yeah, well, I'm not American. I'm a migrant myself, so I can't. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I think I think roughly, uh, uh, I, I just think that America has to have a migration policy um, that is uh, welcoming and open and, and to understand that this is not a favor that is being done to the migrants. It's also... A, a good thing for the American economy. And I think that uh, if you actually look in the long term, the, 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 the American economy, as it has um, evolved and become a very strong economy, I, I think that there are plenty of examples of how migrants have played a huge role into this. Um, so I think that that has to be acknowledged. And, um, and yeah, and advocates for, for uh, getting sensitive migration laws that are not biased by... Um, are, are not biased in terms of, of uh, thoughts that are uh, unfounded or not based on evidence at all. Yep. Thank you all. We're running out of time this morning. I want to give you each a moment to make just a parting thought um, very quickly. Carla. Oh, um, I, I just think that immigrants enrich Maine and they also attract young people because millennials, many of them want to be in a more diverse place and so they're a positive go ahead martha parting shot one last thought i believe strongly that we have to have immigration here in maine or we're just going to age out of existence danny last shot yeah well immigrants are really important for the economy and of course that there are always things to take into account for every economic reform there are always winners and losers but there are are ways to, to welcome the migrants and also have in place enough safety nets to help those that might in the short term uh not gain as much uh, because of those migrants. Thank you all three so much. We are now out of time. So thank you to our guests this morning, Danny Behar, the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution, Carla Dickstein, Senior Vice President for Research and Policy Development and the Maine Coastal Enterprise Institute, and Martha Searchfield, Executive Director of the Bar Harbor Chamber of Commerce. You've been listening this morning to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. Um, We'll see you here next month when our topic is going to be state preemption from garbage to gun control. We'll see you here then. Support for WERU comes from our listeners 